The year is 1995, and the great house still rises from the cliffs above the sea, but it is now deserted and in ruins. It is here, 25 years into the future, that Barnabas and Julia find themselves after their escape from parallel time, searching to discover the causes of the devastation and of the terror at Collingwood. There's nowhere to run, there's no place to hide. This podcast is fun, but there are spoilers inside. Welcome to Terror at Collinwood. I am your hostess, Danielle, aka Penny Dreadful, and I am very excited to have my friend here today, Raymond Castile. Raymond is a YouTube creator, writer, filmmaker, actor, monster collector, and musician, who hosts and produces the amazing Raymond Castile's Basement of Horror YouTube channel, which features an in-depth look at classic monster collectibles. Ray is the world's foremost expert on topstone masks and is a beloved and respected figure in the classic horror community, having received the Monster Kid of the Year Rondo Award in 2006. Bearing an uncanny resemblance to Zé Ducaixão, a.k.a. Coffin Joe, he portrayed the young version of the character in the 2008 feature film Embodiment of Evil and won Tabloid Witch Awards in the categories of Best Actor and Best Short Comedic Horror Film for The Blind Date of Coffin Joe. It's my pleasure to welcome my friend Raymond Castile to the show. Hi, Ray. <laughs> Hello. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh gosh, it's my pleasure. This is this has been a long time coming because I've I've really been not wanting to get you on onto the show as we were talking about before. Uh, you know, I love watching your uh, YouTube channel uh, where you discuss classic monster collectibles, and uh, I think we we, had, we first met in person. I think it was at was it at the two thousand six or two thousand seven monster bash? It was one of those early monster bash or one of the early uh, ones I that, went to. It had to have been at least as far back as two two thousand six. Yeah, yeah. That one before 2006? I think that was the first one I went to was 2006. We knew yeah. each other online. Yes, yep. Yeah, mm-hmm, through the Universal Monster Army and um, Classic Horror Film Board. But of course, we've met in person uh, several times. I, remember, I know you're real. Yeah. <laughs> or am I? We, I, <laughs> you have I know. a physical form. <laughs> I remember one, was it Wonderfest. You you were there as Coffin Joe and you, you did a speech. Yeah, speech yeah. There was a couple of years where I was going around, not as a guest, but just as a crazy fan, going around to conventions dressed as Coffin Joe and doing like a speech. And I'd gather people around. It would be an informal thing. Like people, uh, I had friends who would say, okay, Raymond's going to do uh, his Coffin Joe thing. Come over to this place <laughs> this time. And then people would start, I'd wait and wait and wait and wait and get, people would gather and say, okay, <laughs> now it's time. Then I'd, I'd have my outfit and everything. And I'd, I'm not going to do it now because I'm out of practice. <laughs> but but, but, but I, would, I, I'd do, I'd do like 15, 20 minutes of Coffin Joe. Yes. And, in Portuguese, too. You learned yeah. Portuguese. Oh, yeah. Well, that was after I had been in the actual Cop and Joe movie. That was after that. Yeah. yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But before it was actually released, it was, after, it was after I shot it, like 2006, 2007 into 2008, before it was released. So with that little two-year period, I was sort of, I don't know, was I promoting the movie? Not that wasn't my intent, but I guess that's mm-hmm. sort of what 
was going on. I was kind of popularizing. Yeah. Popular go to this. Oh, I remember online all that. I was very excited for you that you were that this was happening. For those who may not know, Coffin Joe uh, is was a legendary horror star in Brazil who made many films. Do you want to elaborate on Coffin Joe? Well, his real name is Jose Mujica Marins, and he was a, a director, actor, writer, producer. He, he was a Renaissance man. He did it all. Uh, he was an auteur, and he created in the 1960s. And he's, he's in, he was a Brazilian man in Brazil. In the 1960s, he created this character, Zedu Cacho, Coffin Joe, in English it's Coffin Joe, who is an undertaker. And if you want to know what he looks like, just look at your screen. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine a top hat. Yep. <laughs> what he looks like. So. <laughs> a cape and long fingernails. But anyway, he's an undertaker, funeral director, and he's evil. But he's intellectual. He's philosophical. So he's not just like Michael Myers or Jason just killing people. He he goes into these philosophical rants, gives speeches, and, and he talks to God, even though he's an atheist. He's angry at God, even though he doesn't believe he's, he exists. And he has these arguments with God. And he, he wants to have a son because he believes that there's no heaven or hell or afterlife. We just die. And we die and we're gone. So the only kind of continuation that of the, the human essence would be through children through you know like your life essence continuing through your offspring and then living on forever as they have offspring so the only way he can continue to exist is through a child but also he hates humanity he thinks people are stupid and superstitious he hates religion he hates small-mindedness and he thinks that if he has a son it'll be this perfect person this messiah the savior who will save humanity and lead the world into an age of enlightenment. I remember you you, know, you did your cosplay as him, as Coffin Joe, and didn't somebody show the picture of you to him and he thought it was himself? Yes, yeah, so I, <laughs> yeah, so I was a Coffin Joe fan, I guess since the early, since the DVDs came out. I knew about him in the 90s because he had been to like Children's Theater and I'd read about that. I thought maybe he was a horror host. In fact, he was a horror host mm -hmm. in the 90s in Brazil. But I wasn't sure exactly what he was. I knew his name. I'd seen pictures of him. I knew he got a Lifetime Achievement Award at Schiller Theater in the early 90s. So I'd heard of him. But it wasn't until the DVDs came out that, and, and I saw that kind of like your coffin box up there for Dark Shadows, there was a coffin mm -hmm. box like that for Coffin Joe. And you could go to Walmart or um, Best Buy, or you could go to any store and you would see it on the shelf. It was widely distributed. And that was my first exposure to Coffin Joe. And then I got well, like the something weird VHS tapes. I caught up after the fact with those. And then there were DVDs in Brazil that weren't released in the United States. So I got those. And then I, I caught up with his filmography after first seeing the DVDs that were in that coffin set. Mm -hmm. This was early 2000s. And I, I, I just thought, where has this been all my life? The, the, it just, I, I mean, it sounds terrible to say you, you clicked with a character that that's that evil and, and diabolical. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things, like a lot of evil characters, there's, there's things that are universal in them that people can connect with. Otherwise, they wouldn't be popular. Mm -hmm. like, even like someone like, like Norman Bates, I was talking to a friend of mine who's since passed away some years ago is thinking we were talking about Norman, Norman Bates uh, in Psycho and oh how he's actually a, depicted as a sympathetic character and we both agreed that there were times when I, I think he we said there were times when we felt like Norman Bates and I said but so how is it that this character is so popular for so many decades my friend said there are times when everybody feels like Norman Bates even though they don't 
say so. They don't admit it. Even like, you know, normal people, not just crazy people like us. <laughs> Everyone at some point feels like Norman Bates. That's why it's a classic. If, mm -hmm. if that were not the case, it would not have endured. So even even the most evil or despicable or terrible character, like Darth Vader or whatever, they wouldn't be so popular if there wasn't something about them that you could identify with. Um, and so Coffin Joe, he's 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 a goth. <laughs> that was the thing. But he's also he, he you know he's an intelligent, thoughtful character. He's evil, but he's thoughtful. But he's also he's kind of feels trapped in the season this little small town everybody hates them and he's alienated and there's that there's that feeling of isolation and alienation that you can identify with and a feeling of not being able to find your significant other find your your soulmate whatever in that searching searching being kind of doomed never to find that person another thing i like about the character he loves children he's this <laughs> evil character and i don't want him to go into all the things he does because it might get too dark for the show He's a dark character. <laughs> Whatever you're thinking, if you haven't seen the movies, you don't you don't know. <laughs> He's a dark. This is in the '60s. This isn't like some recent torture porn kind of horrible thing. This is in the 1960s in black and white, zero budget movie in Brazil that still has scenes so potent, so mm -hmm. disturbing. You still, it's still hard to watch. Watching it with people in recent years, and there's parts where they're like, "Oh, I, that kind of freaks them out." But the thing I was gonna say, he sincerely loves children not in a perverse way but in an honest way you know mm -hmm. he really loves he thinks they're precious he thinks they're sacred and vital and he would die to protect a child he loves he's like a protector of mm -hmm. children and i i like that you know, that juxtaposition is really super evil character but he loves kids so, and you got to play him in a film and as, as you were saying i was i did like a what they would now call a cosplay i don't think they were calling it at that time but i did a very nice costume went to a lot of trouble to make it look you know, movie accurate it wasn't like some spirit of halloween thing it was mm -hmm. tailor-made and everything it was a lot of vintage parts in it and stuff and uh, a friend of mine named max i think you know max cheney oh sure max. yeah the shrunk was the, the drunken severed, severed head. Yeah. He took the pictures of me in, in this old cemetery with really old tombstones. And I put them online. This is pre-social media. And the real coffin Joe in Brazil, Jose Mujica Marines, but everyone just calls him Mujica. Mm -hmm. He's passed away now, unfortunately. Mujica did an interview, but to illustrate the interview, the reporter, the publisher used pictures of me because they just went online. So oh, here's some great pictures. Let's use these. And so Mujica was reading the interview later and he saw the pictures and he said when did i do that photo shoot i don't remember that then he started to realize wait a minute that's not me and his wife at the time i don't know if they were technically married but his partner let's say his partner went online and said oh, it's not you it's this guy in missouri in the united states so majika got in touch with me through someone who spoke english and just let me know he liked it you know and and, and also there was no problem with it i was i think on the website i i said like please don't sue me or something <laughs> on the website and he said don't worry he would never sue me. he loves it everything's great so i was very happy to hear that and i knew that they were making a new coffin joe movie i had read about it because i was keeping up with what was going on with mujik and coffin joe i so I, I was reading brazilian news sites and stuff trying to just see what was going on with the world of coffin joe so i was aware of this movie and then i don't know it was like six months after i got that first email just kind of congratulating me on my costume and everything that i got another email where the the subject line was do you want to be coffin joe and i, <laughs> <laughs> and I read that and as if they're, they're doing this movie there's a flashback that connects it with one of the 60s movies because there's the 60s movie where the coffin joe dies in a swamp he sinks into the swamp and this 
government at the time, there was a dictatorship in Brazil, forced Mujica. Originally, he was going down cursing God, like an atheist to the end. They forced him to change it so he finds Jesus at the last minute before he sinks. And Mujica hated that. So he wanted to undo that. All his career, he's wanted to undo that ending somehow. So he wanted to connect this new movie to that movie to show him coming back up out of the water, unrepentant, and, and show how he kind of got from where he was sinking into the swamp at, at that end to where he is now. So he wanted a connecting scene. But there was no one he could find that looked like him or acted like him. No one that could replace him in that scene because he wanted wanted it to be seamless as if this were a deleted scene from back then. So no, so that you couldn't even tell that it was a reshot or a new thing. And he couldn't find anyone who could do that. So I said, I'll do that. So he, <laughs> I mean, he contacted me. I said, sure, I'll do it. And then so I went to Brazil for a week and, and they put me in a nice hotel. It was very, very nice experience. And Mujica was great. Um, there was it was a sad when I got there. His co-star in the movie, who was a legendary actor in Brazil, he was like the Jack Nicholson of Brazil. That was what people were calling him. And he was a co-star in this movie. He died, so it was a very sad atmosphere when I arrived on the set the first yeah. day. So I arrived, and everyone was like, oh, "Co-star just died." I thought, oh, is, is the movie over now? Or what's yikes? That's terrible. So yeah. then Mujica arrives. And he's always wearing his costume. He's got like his people on either side, like patting on the back and holding him. He's like, oh, like that. And he's got his hat and his cape and he's all sad. And he, he arrives and he's like, oh gosh. He just got back from the hospital where the doctor died. Oh gosh. He sits down and he's talking to his people like, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And he's like, and, and then they say, Mashika, Mashika, this is Raymond. Oh, Raymond. And he, he, he tried to like be nice and welcoming, even though it was very sad. And, and, and we talked through a translator for a while and we really clicked like boom. I mean, we clicked big time. And like within a couple hours, he was literally crying on my shoulder. He was like crying and, and we were having a moment there. It was like meeting your lifelong best friend that you just met, sort of. That was quite an experience. Yeah. Then he called the whole crew over outside. This was all in, in the studio. They called outside the studio in this outdoor area. And everyone gathered around and he, he'd made his decision. We're not going to shoot anymore today, but we are going to finish this. We're going to continue. I don't know how yet, but we're going to continue, but we can't do anything more today. Yeah. And, and he said something like, I can't be Coffin Joe today or something like that. And, and he dismissed everybody. So that was my first day there. Yeah. <laughs> we shot the movie two years later. I, I went back for the premiere. You know, it always takes a long time when you shoot a movie mm -hmm. and when you release a movie. So I spent mm -hmm. another week there. I shot it in 2006, premiered in 2008, went back. And it was another great week when I went back. It was much more upbeat, of course, at that point. And we did TV interviews and we had a red carpet premiere. It was a lot of, a lot of press. It was a great experience. Both times it was a great yeah. experience. And unfortunately, Mojica passed away just before COVID hit. He didn't die of COVID. He died right. It was like that right before the COVID exploded. So he didn't see the whole world go into lockdown. It was just like a couple of weeks before that happened. I asked, I told a, a friend, the assistant director on the film, I said, it's it's as if Mujica had been holding the world together. And when he died, the world just fell apart. Gosh, well, thank you for sharing that, Ray. We're going to be talking about the 1995 storyline on Dark Shadows today. Uh, a two-week storyline, very impactful. But before we get to that, I want to talk with you about your own history as a uh, fan of classic horror of Dark Shadows. Listening to your uh, YouTube videos and your, and your show, a lot of what you say resonates with 
with me because I consider myself a 70s monster kid. I grew up in the 70s and into the, and people that are you a 70s kid or an 80s kid. I'm kind of like right on that line. I was born in the early 70s. I remember the monster stuff in the 70s and I loved that stuff. So when you talk about monster stuff growing up and seeing all that stuff, it just like I light up because it just resonates with me a lot. So talk, can you talk a little bit about your childhood uh, growing up liking all of this stuff? Yeah, well, I I would consider myself definitely a 70s kid. I mean, I still, I, I, the 80s were my, I would say my teen years. That's when I went mm. to high school and everything. Same. That was my childhood was the 70s. Mm. And I don't remember a time when I wasn't a monster kid. And for people who don't know, monster kid, that David Colton was a former editor of USA Today. And he was sort of a grand poobah of online monster fandom in the 90s. And he's still a big figure in, in classic horror fandom. And he's the one who came up with this term monster kid. He wrote a poem called The Monster Kids. And this is in the 90s, back when that really wasn't a thing yet. I mean, I remember a time when it was just not cool to like monsters or horror. It was still like you were the geekiest of the geeks. Mm-hmm. There were the nerds, and then there were the nerds among nerds. <laughs> that, was the, <laughs> that was the horror monster people. So it wasn't like it is now. So it was kind of a big deal just just a little thing like this poem which today would be like a blip and no one would care back then people cared it, it made an impact this poem the monster kids where he talked about in the poem growing up watching horror movies on tv and playing with the toys and all just beat the whole atmosphere of growing up being a fan of monsters and but it was really referring to 60s monster kids and there was sort of a bias against 70s monster kids at that time and i think uh, myself and some others were some of the monster fans that try to push against that and say, no, no, we're monster kids too, even though we're from the 70s. I think I've heard you say something about being a child of the glow. Have you used that? I have used it. I think that I, I usually refer to the 70s monster craze as the aftershock. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, and I know, too. I think David may have coined uh, children of the glow. I think it was Bob Morris, who who's a collector, who in a, in a negative way called us children of the glow oh really because of the glow aurora glow yeah kids yeah so but he was not being i don't think he was being funny i think he was really like you're not really monster kids or something like that mm. but i embraced that and i started using that and calling myself child of the glow and i think like professor griffin and some others adopted that and we all started saying mm-hmm. we're children of the glow or... <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. i grew up in the 70s and there were monsters everywhere in the 70s. I know everyone talked about 60s, 60s, 60s. I'm sure it was a blast in the 60s, but in the 70s, there were monster movies on TV. There were monster toys in the store. There were monster magazines. There were monster comic books. It just monsters, monsters everywhere in the Absolutely. Yeah. It was a, a no, it's not really strange that kids grew up liking monsters. It was just like if you were in the 80s, maybe you grew up with Masters of the Universe or Real American Hero or Turtles. And if you were in the 90s, maybe it was Power Rangers or I don't know what else, McFarlane Toys or something. I don't know what 90s stuff. But today, I guess you you like your phone. not <laughs> Yes, <laughs> definitely. It's definitely the phone thing. Yeah, um, but back then it was monsters. It was Frankenstein, Dracula, and Creature from the Black Lagoon, et cetera, et cetera. And also there was Scooby-Doo and there was more sure. you know, kitty type monster stuff. Uh, and, and I grew up in the St. Louis area and we had a horror host that I thought was local, but it turns out he wasn't. It was Sinister Seymour. Oh, sure. Yep. He was my horror host growing up. He had a black wide brim hat and a black cape and a very gaunt kind of look. 
And I now know that he was shooting that in Los Angeles and it was syndicated. But back then I didn't know. I thought he was in St. Louis. So that was the only horror host I knew. But but I had a horror host, a real mm -hmm. honest goodness horror host on TV. And over time, there were some other, not as good as him, but there were some other horror hosts that were local that came along. But I could go to the store and I could buy or have my ask my parents to buy action figures of all the universal monsters or rubber toys or Aurora model kits. And I I would always have my dad build the model kits. I wasn't able to, I was too, too young for that. I'd build them, then I would try to play with them and, and break them. So he would spend hours building them and I'd immediately try to play with them and destroy them. <laughs> you snap them off. <laughs> and there was Famous Monsters magazine. So it was like, sure. like an actual journal of what you were a fan of mm -hmm. that kind of legitimized it. Sure. It, it wasn't like you're just floating out into weirdness. There was this official publication that I sort of put a stamp of approval on, on your mindset. And, and so I was all big into monsters. And then like every other kid, Star Wars hits, but I didn't flush monsters down the toilet. I sort of folded it all in. But certainly in the late 70s, my focus started to shift a little more towards Star Wars. Yeah. Um, but I would never, I never left the monsters completely. I was always the monster kid. And then we had I mean, there was Jaws and there was Alien and there was some other, and there was, then the slashers came along. So there's, there was still, even then, with Star Wars, new monster stuff that was popular in the mainstream. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't until really high school that it really started to recede. And I didn't, well, I, I, on the one hand, I was going to say that I didn't think much about monsters anymore. On the other hand, that's when I started watching Dark Shadows in syndication in, in high the, school. In the 80s? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I I don't know, is it that might be an unintentional segue to how I... No, that's a great segue. <laughs> yeah. How did you discover Dark Shadows in high school? Uh, well, I as a kid, I had the Dark Shadows Barnabas game with the skeletons. Not as a youth, but brand new. My mom bought it. Um, I don't remember asking for it. My mom, I think my mom bought it. I, I She must have seen Dark Shadows, I assume. Because she seemed to know what it was. And I I had some of the gold key comics. And if I didn't own them, then I, re I read them at the store. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's I read a lot of comics as a kid, but I only actually owned so many of them because my parents wouldn't, wouldn't buy them. So for every one I owned, there was 10 more I read at the store. I used to do that too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so, I mean, I had a lot of exposure to the gold key Dark Shadows mm -hmm. comic book. I only owned a few, but I, I read several over the years. So you were aware of Dark Shadows prior to having I, watched yeah, it? Yeah, so for me, Dark Shadows was this comic book mm -hmm. with Barnabas and everything, and this game, the comic book and the game. So it was part of my childhood. It's just not the show. Mm -hmm. um, and then there was the Dennis Gifford horror movies book, that big book, and Barnabas was in there. And there was another still from Dark And then there were other like children's horror books like you get from the school library about horror movies and stuff. And there would always be a chapter would have a picture of Barnabas with his fangs and his cane. Mm -hmm. Why well, should I have the cane back? I've got one of those. <laughs> He's like, like oh. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> so I knew who Barnabas was. I knew Dark Shadows. It was a part of my childhood without actually seeing the show. So I, in a way, I almost feel like one of those like running home from school kids because those things were current. The game was current. The comic book was current. That was all current stuff. And I was there and I experienced that and it was part of my childhood, but the show wasn't part of my childhood. Uh, and, and I was alive during the last chunk of time the show was on. So who knows, maybe my mom pointed <laughs> my eyes at the screen and I, and, and I saw it, but I don't, 
I don't remember. So so I was alive. Wild Dark Shadows was on the air. And I had the current comic book. And I had the, some of the current merchandising. But I never saw the show until the 80s when it was syndicated. And in my, my market, it was on the PBS station. So I was in high school. I was really into... I was into Doctor Who. I was into the Jeremy Brett, Granada, Sherlock Holmes series. Sure. <laughs> and Dark Shadows just kind of fit into all that. It was compatible with all that. That's, yeah. and, and, and Barnabas, he, as a character, he was sort of, he felt compatible with Brett, Sherlock Holmes, or some of the, the doctors. And he was that sort of character. He just fit that aesthetic. Um, and so I got very into the show obviously but also particularly into barnabas and as i was talking about identifying with characters i i was gonna say yeah i totally identified with barnabas and so many people did connect with barnabas despite some of the horrible stuff he was doing there was that glimmer of of humanity that sort of grew through the series that you kind of connected with sure especially for a teenager I'll, he's mm -hmm. so much angst and lost love unrequited love and being an outsider and not oh, yeah. in all this very a lot a lot of things for a teenager to connect with and even the darker stuff a lot of teenagers feel like they're causing harm or causing trouble or something that they don't want to that's part of the sort of the awkwardness of being a teenager and, and it's, so there's a lot of levels where a teen where anyone but particular teen would identify with Barnabas. So I absolutely identified with him. I, I did like it when he started to soften up late, later, I because I knew sort of the trajectory of the show, even though I hadn't watched it. I knew when I was, because I saw from the first Barnabas episode where he's got w Willie by the neck, as soon as they started syndicating it locally from day one, I, I was watching it. So I knew kind of where it was going. I knew, okay, he's really kind of evil, not very nice right now, but I knew sort of where the from reading about it, where they were going to go eventually. So I kind of had some context there, but I definitely liked the more likable Barnabas from a couple of years in more than the more Dracula-like Venice, you know, the more, more House of Dark Shadows type Barnabas in the early months. Mm -hmm. But even in the early months, there were still things to identify with. And well, then I kind of lost track of Dark Shadows a little bit because they, they went halfway through the parallel time story until he was stuck in his coffin. And then that was it. That's where, yeah, that's where the syndication package <laughs> ended. Yeah, yep. <laughs> yeah, kind of left me hanging there. Yeah. Um, and I didn't really reconnect. I didn't watch it on the Sci-Fi Channel because the scheduling never worked out. They were, they were all showing at weird times and I yeah. was never available. So it wasn't until the 2000s, really until streaming. I, I caught up with it again, uh, streaming. And then uh, like Amazon, those kind of services. Over the last several years, I, I, I rewound a little bit into the Leviathan story, not to the very beginning, but I, I, like halfway through, because the very beginning, Barnabas is under their control. And it's kind of like, <laughs> so I went to the point where he kind of regains control of himself through to the end of the series. And, mm -hmm. and that was the first time I, first time I ever saw like the Bramwell, the oh, right. that mm -hmm. parallel 1841 parallel time. Mm -hmm. I read all about it. I was very curious about it. I, I couldn't wrap my mind. Like, how are they going to do this? Like, so all the characters are different. What? Yeah. And so I finally saw it. And I, I liked it. It was, I certainly would have rather they stayed. Well, I would have rather the show had continued and they went back. I don't mind yes. that little detour. It would have been nice if um kind of what, like a prime universe character were in there. I agreed. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. To give it something of an anchor. Yeah. But I didn't mind that little detour. It's too bad that it ended there. I agree. I would have been nice to have like 
just a, maybe a month or even a couple of weeks where they just come back to the present day and just kind of have a final, even if it was a brief storyline to kind of wrap things up. But I wonder if leaving it like that made people hungry for more. And maybe that's also what plays into the desire for more Dark Shadows, like just the way it ended in this alternate time band with none of our... <laughs> Characters. Yeah, how many and i hate to use words like franchises and ips and a little bit yeah i know i know <laughs> i don't know what else to say how many ips how many end in a nice tidy way true I'm going all the way back into the 1800s i mean <laughs> classic ips from like going back 200 years how many of them are all wrapped up nice and tidy they all just kind of stop there, something stops them like they stop making money or mm -hmm. one dies or some someone gets fired or something happens and they just sort of eh, stop. Mm -hmm. It's rare that something gets all wrapped up nicely. And then if it does get wrapped up nicely, someone who comes along later and unwraps it and messes it up. <laughs> yes. I mean, we're not naming names. We were kind of talking about that yeah. a couple hours ago. <laughs> it seemed that seems to be the case. And with a lot of a lot of these fran franchises, I guess, for lack of a better word, that that does happen. Um, one thing I, I want to bring up too is I've heard you talk about this on your show and i've talked about this as well the monster craze in the 60s is sort of the famous monster craze that happened in the 60s with the shock theater package and you had you know the, the aurora model kits and famous monsters of filmland but yeah, then it's really a 50s thing though everyone talks about it like the 60s what's that famous monsters the shock the shock theater package. oh it started in the late yeah the 57 in 57 so i mean yeah technically it was the late 50s but it continued but then i think when it got into it started in the late 50s well you had vampire in 54 but that was pre-shock theater but then shock theater was 57 and then we had but then in the early in the early 60s you saw this proliferation even of even more horror shock theater was that in the 60s and beyond you didn't need this package anymore. yeah no no that's off on its own shock son of shock yeah it kind of took off on its own but you had this all of this happening in the 60s with the 60s monster craze and then there was a dip which you talk about a lot on your channel on the basement of horror with um, the moon landing and stuff people kids kind of were focusing on on this yeah. moon space stuff but then there was another Wars in the I would, like when star wars came along this a decade later you had a yes. dip it was a dip but again. Space keeps so, kicking our, our rear ends. It just, I know, I know. Right? Years, we get this space stuff that, that derails us and shifts yes. over to this. But, uh, but Dark Shadows kind of bridged those two monster crazes in a lot of ways, I think, because Dark Shadows started in the 60s and ended in the early 70s. And it's sort of, I, I think Dark Shadows often doesn't get enough uh, when, when you read articles about monster culture and, and kids in the 60s and you know doing building the aurora model kits or whatever you know things like that famous monsters i think dark shadows is an important part of that tapestry particularly as we go from the 60s into the 70s you have any thoughts on that i could just say no and get up and leave that would not <laughs> <laughs> you disagree uh, no, uh, no i agree i agree um it certainly did exist during that time I guess Hammer too. I mean, you could say Hammer horror uh, too, like that kind of sort of gothic horror element carrying on. What I'm wondering is, is when you say bridge the gap, do you think that it it was, oh, was there a gap responsible for a resurgence in horror in the '70s? Because when I think of bridging it, I think of something that maybe without it, it would have died. Without it, you wouldn't have had the horror resurgence. Um, Maybe I mean I mean we could even point the finger to Dan Curtis and say Dan Curtis also played a role in keeping 
in addition to Dark Shadows with all of the other stuff he was doing uh, in the 70s with the horror, TV horror stuff like uh, like the Night Stalker. Yeah, you can have a discussion of Dan Curtis TV horror that doesn't even cover Dark Shadows and still <laughs> it, it would still be a very rich conversation with a lot to talk about. Sure. About yeah. Dark Shadows. So I, I would say I don't think solely responsible, but I think it was a key element in sort of uh, keeping the, the gothic horror ball rolling, I guess, from the 60s and into the 70s. And then you see another spike hat. Like I remember like the Marvel uh, monsters uh, in the 70s and, you know, uh, the, the glow kits. I wonder if Dark Shadows has an influence we don't really know about because you just mentioned Marvel. I've heard people say that they think um, like Tomb of Dracula and Werewolf by Night, that they think that those might have been influenced by Dark Shadows. I'm not qualified really say, but the pe mm. other people I think have seen an influence there. And I see that. independent see that. horror, some people have seen an influence in some of the vampire and werewolf films. I'm oh, for sure, for sure. Movie House of Dark Shadows. So this bridge, here's this river of the moon landing in space and all this, this non-horror river. And then we've got the 60s horror land and the 70s horror land but ah there's a river there so if we have this bridge this dark shadows i feel like house of dark shadows the movie is like this catapult flaming mm -hmm. catapult that goes poof, into the 70s and explodes and kills several hundred people <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's it's this house of dark shadows is is this very 70s very <laughs> aggressive full-blooded it is a 70s sort of Bryant House exploitation in your face horror movie that's sort of like almost like Dark Shadows from the 60s looking at the 70s say okay right. take, take that well it is that more yeah it's I mean I think it was Dr. Durant on his YouTube channel he was talking about the Pickwick horror record that scarred me for life which I think is was from the early 70s he described it and I think just the 70s monster for the horror craze in the 70s as lurid more lurid than the 60s monster craze and I think House of Dark Shadows kind of falls into that category for sure grenade thrown into the Dark Shadows <laughs> packing up everything it's all the mojo it's got into this grenade and tossing it into the right seven. right so, <laughs> so I, I wonder if that movie which was successful if that had an influence see i don't i don't have the it was like for instance count yorga is that before or after house of dark shadows uh, uh, count york what year did blackula. i think it was after blackula was after and in fact i was talking to dominic lamsey's about blackula because i think dark shadows had an influence on blackula um and scream blackula scream i think they're Barnabas, the characterization of Barnabas in terms of the lost love and the, the kind of their elements of sympathy with regard to the vampire definitely is something you see a lot in vampire fiction after Dark Shadows. So in, the, in that sense, Dark Shadows, in terms of like bridging 60s and 70s, I think Dark Shadows after that post-Dark Shadows, you start to see a lot more of the that kind of a vampire with the lost love and the, the sympathetic uh, characteristics and all of that kind of thing. And I wonder how much Dark Shadows influenced its own creator, Dan Curtis, because mm -hmm. there's a lot of Dark Shadows in the Night Stalker. The oh, yeah. Movie, both yeah. in the Night Strangler, too, but more so the first one. I mean, that vampire is almost like 
you know, Barnabas got up on the wrong side of bed or something. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> the wrong side, side of the coffin. coffin. Yeah. <laughs> and then, of course, there's the Dracula with, with Jack Palance, too, which is very Dark Shadows-esque in, in, in certain ways. But yeah. Um, okay, so you have this channel, The Basement of Horror. Can you talk a little bit about your interest in collecting monsters? It's hard to say, like, why do I collect? I don't know why I collect anything. But as a kid, I certainly was not a collector. I just had toys and stuff. And I threw the good graces of my parents and grandparents and their money and their willingness to buy. Because my, my parents were always anti-monster with me. They kept trying to get mm -hmm. me out of this whole monster thing over and over and over. And then my grandmother was always, as grandmothers often are, they're always trying to do the opposite of what the parents want. So if there's something that parents are trying to get the child out of, grandma's indulging that interest. So if there was a monster toy I wanted. My parents were like, no, we're not going to get that terrible thing. As soon as my grandmother knew that, she would get that. But my parents bought me a lot of monster toys and 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 games and stuff. And like I said, my mom bought that Dark Shadows game. My grandmother bought me a lot of stuff. So I wasn't collecting this stuff. I was just a kid enjoying the fact that I had a family willing and able to buy me all this junk. And I was just playing with it and enjoying being a kid and watching the movies and reading the magazines and stuff. And then through my teenage years, as I said, I, I was kind of receding from horror, although at the same time getting into Dark Shadows, but I wasn't playing with toys. Or I wasn't collecting. I was watching the stuff, but I wasn't surrounding myself with totems and mm -hmm. spending money on it. And it wasn't until I was in college. Well, it so the collecting world sort of all blew up at the same time. I think it was the 89 Batman that really mainstreamed collecting because that's when people who never really had considered buying toys or stuff started to do it. I, I think there's something about the phenomenon of that movie that was the, the lit the fuse that made all kinds of pop culture collecting suddenly become mainstream, whereas just a year before it wasn't. So it was around that time into the late 80s and early 90s that I started collecting toys. And maybe I would have been collecting them all along if I knew there was such a thing. I didn't know that you could collect a toy. I didn't know that you could find old toys still in the package or in unplayed with condition. I didn't know that anybody cared about that stuff. I, I thought a 20-year-old toy still in the package should be worth $3 because it's old. Isn't that what mm -hmm. happens when something gets old? It gets worth less and less and less, right? That's what happens to the store, the clearance. <laughs> clearance right. I had this whole idea that it would become worth more money or become more desirable or people would in invest it psychologically with more value. That was like, a, it was a new way to think. But when I discovered that there was this thing called collecting and you could find this stuff, it's hard to say why it fascinated me, but it just, I think it was sort of like, almost like whatever spirit I had back in the childhood playing with the toys, there was a way I could that's was still inside of me. And no, I, as an adult, I'm not going to play with toys, but I could still take that same spirit and continue it as an adult, instead of trying to box it up like, like a, like a vampire in a coffin trying to keep it <laughs> contained, I could open the coffin and let it out. And there was a, a socially acceptable way to do that. But I also think there's a bit of a mental illness. <laughs> when you start collecting. I mean, I'm looking at your stuff back there. <laughs> <laughs> it is it is i have a, a sickness i mean if i, I don't can have, relate <laughs> you know i could if i wanted to have shelves and all that mm -hmm. for a variety of reasons i don't but i mean i've got boxes and boxes of stuff packed away i don't display stuff i display it for purposes of a youtube show but in real in real life i don't display it but i have all that stuff so it's kind of a 
it is like a mental illness. I don't know if it's like a courting or almost a kind of OCD kind of a thing where I don't know what it's this desire to just have all this stuff. Well, and- you're almost like a, you're like a, a, a curator in a museum almost is what it feels like to me. Like when you, cause you have it all very perfectly preserved, but you show it like, it's great that you share it in the way that you do and show people these really rare things. Like my friend Meredith is also into collecting monsters and you've been a huge influence on me and in, in both good and bad way, <laughs> financially bad, but good in that like, oh, wow, that's really well, cool. I'm very impressed with this collection behind you. <laughs> I know some, of it, yeah, some I already had, but a lot I didn't. I mean, I think, I don't know, over the last year or so, my collection has just exploded, but you definitely have this great way about you where you it's comforting and it's fun and you talk about things in a in a fun way and you show off these very rare items you know and talk about them that most people don't see so i was saying my friend meredith she'll show me a picture of something or whatever and i'll say oh ray has that she's of course ray has that i have insecurities i think i always feel like my collection is really not that great <laughs> <laughs> really wow you have a, yeah, was, an amazing yeah, collection i don't know why you would think that but <laughs> I don't know. it's okay it's not, because i particularly in recent years with social media there are people who just have these insane collections that are they have like an entire house wow filled with stuff and they've just got you know it must be worth millions just these crazy collections and i feel like we've got these sort of mega collections that were maybe they were mm-hmm. all there and we just didn't know about it maybe they've emerged in recent years it was mm-hmm. all there were always super collectors but there was like a handful of them but mm-hmm. now it seems like there's a new category of collecting of these mega collections that are just several lifetimes worth of collectibles and you know something that maybe would be a once in a lifetime piece for you they've got 50 of them wow not, yeah. not the same one but like stuff of that caliber and that's just in this corner of the room and so over here is just mind-boggling so I, I feel like i'm not like that that when you I feel like the standard, what's a great collection would be like that. And, and, and I don't want that anymore. I think that's changed is I just don't care so much anymore. Right. I've got what I've got, you know, I'll, I'm sure I'll buy more stuff over time, but I'm not like when people, people ask me like, uh, what's something you really, what are you after? What do, what would you really like? What's a, what's an item that's like on your top of your want list or whatever. I'm like, ah, I don't know. I don't really have one. I mean, I want my cat to be healthy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they're just things. They're just material things. It's just fun in a nostalgic way. I think for me, that just reminds me of things that I like that that make me happy. And just seeing them makes me smile or makes me go. Please smile to see your collection. Well, thank you. Thank you. Uh, Well, you're you're definitely an an inspiration. I don't have a Dark Shadows collection. That needs to change at some point because there needs to be a a wing in the basement of heart. Our collection. I don't have a dark shadows collection <laughs> i have I've, universal monsters and all kinds of other mm-hmm. stuff but i don't have like what i'm looking at right there yeah. i've been collecting dark shadows stuff since, since i was a kid for a long time and then i went through a long period where i stopped buying more dark shadows stuff so um i and i did go through a period where i sold some of it and kept some key pieces but i've gone back and collected a lot of the things that i was missing um but their new dark shadows collectibles now uh, i want to talk to you about this a little bit and kind of announced this as well. There is a new Barnabas 
Collins bobblehead that just came out from MPI Home Video. Um, I have the old one too, so I'm going to just compare them here and we can, okay. <laughs> can give our, our initial thoughts here. Uh, there isn't much Dark Shadows merchandise these days. Every so often, you know, Hermes Press is doing the books and things like that. But uh, as far as things like this, you, you know, MPI every once in a while will put something out. That this is the original one. Yep. That looks like John that captures his character, his essence, his expression, just his his attitude. That looks like yeah. Jonathan Fred. And that looks like the co the costume is nice. Mm -hmm. That other one, I don't I'm not sure who that is. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what happened. The, the hair, I like the bangs on, yeah, on the hair is nice, but but the bangs were, but I don't know what happened. For the audio listeners, I'm holding up the two Barnabas bobbleheads. There is a new Barnabas bobblehead from MPI. So the base is much smaller on the new one. They changed the lettering, it looks like, kind of. Um, yeah, the new one has just the sans serif blah kind of area. Yeah. And the old one, at least, is trying to have a bit of a gothic look with the with the lettering. Yeah. They have the two leaves on the bottom on the on the grass there, and he's holding the cane. This the body looks pretty much the same. It just looks like they. I will say this: the head of the cane on the new one. Oh is no. Better. Yeah, yeah, oh, no, no. you're you're right. The whole th I think you're right. Yeah, the whole thing is actually I think is a new sculpt. Yes, you're right. Yep, the cane is different, and the back, the collar on the back of the cape on the old one is better. There's like a little lip to it, whereas this one doesn't really have that. So I bought it, but I don't I don't know why I did because I have the old one, but um I just I want to support Dark Shadows products. I bought it, but at the same time I don't know what they were going for it's here. Like a, like a game show host. You know, like a themed episode where he comes yeah. out just as a vampire. Yeah. <laughs> yes. That's a good way to describe it. I don't know how else At you least could both describe of them it. Have black clothing. That's that's a good that's it's kind of like Frankenstein yes. green jacket. <laughs> yes, yes. The pet pe I I also hate the green jacket on Frankenstein, but as people know too, I hate the brown coat on Barnabas. Uh as I know you you're not a fan of that as well. And I have that here too. This is the Majestic Studios Count Chocula uh, version of Barnabas. Here, I mean, he ever on. like that? I never. I don't. He did have a brown suit at for that he wore for in a few episodes during the uh, Adam storyline, but that was short lived. And the coat, the Inverness coat, was never brown. He even has brown shoes on this figure. They're all about the brown Barnabas here. I don't know why, but that's a very strange choice. And I asked Doctor Migo because you know we're talking about Dark Shadows Migo figures, and Doctor Migo is Paul Clark. Um, he was he was very big in the customizing world and he had this company called MC, which is sort of like his mm -hmm. attempt to recreate Migo. And then now he's with the official Migo in, involved with their official Migo action figures that you can find at Walmart or Target or wherever. Mm -hmm. He was involved with uh, the uh, MC was connected with Spectre Toys, which did these where Barnabas is also wearing <laughs> for some strange reason. Barnabas is in brown here too. And he said, it was uh, the licensor wanted Barnabas and Brown, which is strange because the licensor is doing all the MPI stuff and Barnabas is wearing black in all of those. So I don't... Even the older stuff, he's in black. I mean, I don't... Yeah. From those figures, I don't remember a time where all the licensed stuff had Barnabas and Brown. It, isn't that weird? I don't I don't understand why that happened. Maybe Brown cloth was cheaper. I, I really don't understand why that choice was made, but... So Jim Pearson's the guy who makes this decision. Have you, you yes. know him or you've talked to him? Or... Um, I don't know him personally. I have reached out to him. I hope to have him on at some point. So um, if 
he's on, will you ask him about that? I will. Yes, I will indeed ask him about that because I am curious about that that myself. Because, like I said, all all the vintage stuff and all the MPI stuff too is he's wearing black, uh, so I don't get the brown stuff because I, I know. Curious to hear what he, Jim, Mr. Pearson says. Yeah, because I know Paul Clark was saying they'd like to do a Barnabas Migo. I don't know if that if they will, but he said they would like to do that. So if yeah. they do, I hope he is not wearing brown. I noticed Frankenstein lately. He's in black again, so that's exciting. Yeah, that's good. Lately, I've seen have. like the NECA one is in black. Although the Jada Frankenstein is in green. Uh, for yeah, someone. green still pops up now and then. Yeah. I think that. Um, I think there's different kinds of licenses and you can get the generic sort of style guide license, mm -hmm. which might still be in green, or you could get, you could get the Karloff movie likeness license, mm -hmm. which maybe that's got the black. Yeah. Do, do you think there's a Dark Shadows style guide? I want to ask Jim about that Mr. too. Pearson. Yeah, I mean, I'd like to ask. If, about there, if there ever was, it should be on one of these shelves. <laughs> you have it. I, can I would love to have a copy of that. Because I know with Universal, they used to have printed style guides and they were like booklets and you could page through them and see the different illustrations of the monsters and what colors they should be and all that. That sounds a little advanced for, because yeah. Dark Shadows, how much merchandising is there per year? So I don't know if they yeah. would be expense of printing a book like that True. or how many pieces might they True. license in a year. I, I don't know. Maybe it's better that if there isn't one, just because I like what you say on your channel about how things are licensed now within an inch of their lives, you know, with the, and everything has to check all the boxes in the You're style like, guide. Style guided within an inch of their lives. Style guided. Yeah. Yeah. Within an inch of. Style guided to a verb. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's at least very little room for creative expression when you have to be so by the books with every single thing, you know, and it's nice. Well, That's why I like the vintage this is stuff. A, this is my childhood creature. Yes. Yeah. That is the one that I actually played with as a kid. Mm -hmm. So I've had that along. And I've got a photo of me the day I got this. I hesitate because I had two of them as a kid. One broke and then I got a replacement. This is the replacement. So I don't know in the photo. There's a photo of me as a kid sitting in my grandmother's lap opening the card for this creature i don't know if it's the one that broke or if it's this one but it's mm -hmm. nice that i have that photo but anyway this is my childhood buddy he's been with me my whole life and imagine not as a tribute piece or as a retro piece but as a brand new piece no no one would make a creature from the black lagoon mm -hmm. action figure that looked like that today it's very crude and stylized but it's cool and yeah. they just you know, just it looks like the creature from the black lagoon it, but today they would it would look very sterile yep and, and for, for the audio listeners this is fun. the azrak hamway international creature from the black lagoon if you haven't seen it do a, a google image search for it you'll you'll see what it looks like it, it's very cute it's very crude it's very cool and it captures here's the thing you can capture the likeness of something or you can capture the spirit of something and those old toys and model kits and all other kinds of products they captured the spirit of those yep. monster here they they captured what they look like in our imaginations, not necessarily what they look like on the screen. Mm -hmm. And what would you, as a kid playing with something, what would you rather have? I think you want something that captures the way you feel about it. And now it's all this kind of wax museum sort of replica of either it's that kind of a replica of what you see on the screen or it's the opposite extreme, these goofy style guide cartoon right. things that look nothing. They, they don't look cool. They don't look neat. They don't look fun. And they also don't look like the movie image or the actor either so i don't know who they're for yep agreed we should talk about 1995 um which it's is short 25 minutes we'll have time left over it is, yeah. the other 30 minutes 
<laughs> true, true. Well, I, we, I'm sure we'll have a lot to say about it. It's a short storyline, but it's a very uh, memorable storyline. And this is one of those, as you pointed out, you know, Dark Shadows in syndication ended in the middle of uh, parallel time. So people who were watching Dark Shadows, I guess, second generation fans or people who missed it the first time around didn't get to see 1995. I remember reading about it prior to having watched it and was shocked even just reading uh, about it. But then watching it, it is, um, I know people sometimes will knock the last year of Dark Shadows in terms of its storylines and stuff that not as strong as some of the earlier storylines. Um, I don't necessarily agree with that, particularly especially because I think this storyline is, there's something so apocalyptic about 1995 when Barnabas and Julia come out of 1970 parallel time, they enter the, the room and somehow they've been thrust forward in time, back into their own time band, but back, but forward in time. There's all kinds of strange time travel stuff happening in Collinwood. My theory has always been, you know, there's, um, they've messed with time so much in Collinwood with, with the time travel that the barriers, uh, I you know, like from like halfway through the series forward, mm -hmm. Dark Shadows is it's as much a science fiction time travel show as it is a gothic horror show. It becomes such a big part of the story. Even when they're not traveling in time, it feels like there's still this element to it. It really turns into a like Doctor Who or something, a, a sci-fi fantasy film or sci-fi sci fantasy story, but with a dark gothic atmosphere. Yeah. A lot of times the time travel in Dark Shadows is accomplished through the use of um, of the occult, you know, the I Ching, for example, or the seance with Vicky getting thrust back in time. They never really explain why parallel time came into existence. It's just there in a room That's in the true. East Wing. And this is actually some of the things I noted that when Barnabas and Julia arrive in 1995, they make a point in the dialogue of almost establishing a kind of pulp sci-fi groundwork to what's going to happen because Barnabas talks about time warps, mm -hmm. radioactivity, and he yes. uses sci-fi lingo. Yeah. And I'm thinking, like, why do they do that? It's almost like they're trying to position the story as something more science fiction oriented, but then they don't stick with that. By the time they're, it's done, it's back to ghosts and gothic and mm -hmm. crosses and stuff. One thing I wonder with 95, did this start as a longer story and it get condensed? Because it feels like they're, they lay the groundwork for things and plant some seeds that are never, they never sprout, that they never, they, they drop some things. They, it feels like they're trying to set the stage for certain things, but then it doesn't pan out. Well, well can I, can we back up a little? Cause they're coming off of this parallel time. And now you were talking about how people think the last year of Dark Shadows is, is weak. Not everyone, but some people. Yeah, rewatching like over the recent, in recent years, I found that, I mean, this, this is maybe a, a controversial thing to say. I think 1970 parallel time might be my favorite storyline. It's a great storyline. Yeah, with the, even though Barnabas is out of the, out of the story, I don't like that. I wish he'd, it's okay for him like a week or two, but he's out too long. On the other hand, that gives the other characters a chance to breathe and the other stories a chance to develop so that when he is dropped back into it, it's almost more dramatic. It's it, There's more impact because it kind of shakes things up more because everything, there's this established world's almost turned into a different show now. Mm -hmm. And then Barnabas descends into the middle and of that. And people are waiting for that. You know, it's like, when is, when is this going to happen? Because I remember watching that and like, when is Barnabas going to come back? When is he going to come back into the picture? And you're waiting for it and waiting for it he doesn't uh, disappoint he's really yeah, yeah. he some of my favorite moments like i love when angelique 
when he's looking at her painting and he says something like, I want to see you through the eyes of Angelique. And he has like that special effect with, oh, right. right, right, right. What's going on? And like Julia's the evil other Julia's with her and she's like, what's going on? And she rushes into the room and she's like, yeah, like, what are you? Who are you? And he's like, kind of turning around with the painting like, yes, I know what you are. Angelique. Yes. (laughs) Oh, I love that. I love it when Barnabas does things like that. Absolutely. Yeah. When he uses his powers in that way. They're in the, 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 in parallel time, the, the Collinwood is burned to the ground by the evil version of Stokes in, in parallel time. And he's separated from Roxanne. And then time band shifts. Barnabas and Julia are now in, in this, they don't know it yet, but they're in the future now. Uh, and of course, Barnabas is like, I will always hate this room for what it has done to me. <laughs> is there a room Barnabas enters that doesn't make him feel that way? Uh, yeah. <laughs> And he, said, drama and, tragedy. and he says that Roxanne was the first uh, first woman to make him forget his beloved Josette, which I, I always had a kind of a hard time buying that um, just because he was obsessed with Josette for so long. And now Roxanne has kind of come along and he's shifted his. I do like Roxanne. I mean, I don't know. Fans, I like Roxanne. No, she's, and, she's cool. But... Bad mouth Roxanne, but I, I like Roxanne. Yeah. I can see what Barnabas sees in her. They're in the future. I really like that Barnabas and Julia are kind of, I mean, they they develop into this team, almost like a Holmes and Watson kind of a situation, I guess, you know, they're with the two of them. There's some great scenes here where Julia clearly is, I think you recall Julia, she's the, the ultimate example of someone being friend-zoned, which Anyone is- Anyone who says friend-zoned doesn't exist, watch Dark Shadows. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. Yeah. Yes, it exists. That's what it is. Yeah, she said. And it's she, not a, and I hate it when people. First of all, yes, you can be in a friend zone. It, it does exist. I hate it when people try to make the argument that being saying you're in a friend zone. It it they 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 always talk about sex. It means like the difference between being in a friend zone, not being in a friend zone, is whether you're having sex. It's nothing to do with sex. It's love. It's sure. not sex. There's different kinds. There's family love, friendship love, and then there's romantic love Mm -hmm. and it's a situation where one person is in love with someone who maybe loves them or really likes them as a friend and the other person may be aware maybe not maybe doesn't want to be aware or is kind of deliberately not wanting to see it there's things that need to be said that are not being said Mm -hmm. and it's to be like an unhealthy situation because neither one wants to completely end it and break up so it's better to have this kind of painful relationship at least it's a relationship instead of risking destroying it in Barnabas and Julia's case I think well it's there are times she tries to tell him how she feels and there's one time she asked him to bite her and he's like no I don't say that how could you say that I wouldn't do that and so there's times over the series where where she says things there's a time where Willie is trying to convince Barnabas like Barnabas open your eyes don't you see like your soulmate is right there I can't can't what and Barnabas is like what are you trying to get me to say Willie he's like yeah it deals with it like every few months, there seems like there's a little well, moment like that. But it really, I think it comes to a head in the storyline. And you could almost look at the whole story as the story of this relationship from the opening moments and the closing moments. You could almost get rid of what's in between and just take those opening and closing right. moments as bookends that kind of define the relationship and also kind of give it a sort of a, a closure. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's it, the, that kind of relationship continues, but I feel like we, we get somewhere by the end of that story arc. We've not made peace with it, but we've gotten some kind of resolution to this tension. Yeah. Where they stand with one another. Not what we'd like, maybe, but 
there's some there is a there is an arc in the relationship over these two weeks where we end up with, with the opening moments opening scenes you have Barnabas moaning about Roxanne Roxanne yeah <laughs> and Julia says something like you know I know what it's like to be in this hopeless situation where you something we learn to live love with. someone yeah they can never love you back or something like that she's yeah. And, and of course, we know what she's talking about, but Barnabas is just sort of like, it's like going. He's a, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. But he's, it's clear that he he cares very deeply for Julia. He thinks of her as a friend that he cares for deeply, but he's not romantically interested in her. Uh, and he's also a vampire, too, at this point, which is. I think that has to well, you know, he's a human. He doesn't suddenly say. No, no. Oh, he's been right here all along. He, it doesn't. No. So it's not just being a vampire, though that probably is part of that. He has a predatory quality mm -hmm. of the vampire which is another thing in this 1995 storyline he he has a predatory quality that he can't really help that maybe is part of why he is only attracted to these beautiful young women that could be it that's you know vampires go up for beautiful young women it's kind of the tradition but even when he's a human he doesn't seem to see what's right in front of him right with but, so mm -hmm. but there's obviously i wouldn't say that there's they're incompatible they're such good friends i mean he's a very dangerous creature and she's someone who could potentially destroy him so if ever there were two people who should be like this it's mm -hmm. them and yet they're like sure. this sure so yeah. and she does almost destroy him uh in the storyline you know by well under gerard's control here but and then he won't leave you know he says never without you at the end he won't leave without her i took that as a gesture of his love for Julia, who's uh, caring for Julia, but some people will interpret that as a romantic. Well, I think statement. it's a romantic moment. It can be a romantic. Mm -hmm. I, I see that moment and I go, oh, you know, it's a romantic moment, mm -hmm. even if he doesn't mean it that way. I think at the beginning, she's wondering if, if he cares at all or what, what does she feel? How what does he feel about me? Like, I'm kind of on the outside of this. And by the end, I mean, yeah, she, especially considering that he's a vampire and if you make him mad he's liable to just get sure. you he she's betrayed him she's almost caused his destruction she's done a lot of damage so and and it would be in his survival wise his best interest to just do what she oh. says get out of there but, but he wouldn't certainly would sacrificing in that moment and of course that line never without you that's i think yeah. one of the great lines of the series oh it's a classic line oh for sure yeah it's, it is one of the great lines of the series and it's not gonna leave her no, definitely not. And it just, I think you, like you said, it gives closure. It cements what that relationship is and going forward in the series. So um, they descend the stairs. They see that Collinwood is in utter ruins, which is, again, talk about a, a classic and memorable moment in the show, uh, seeing Collinwood just uh, devastated and you know, what happened? How did, how did this happen? It's so shocking. You know, the Collinwood you've been with for all these years is, is, is a wreck. And I have a, a quote here from set designer Cy Tomashoff. If you, if you don't mind, I'm going to just quickly read this. Set designer Cy Tomashoff in the Dark Shadows Almanac, which was one of the books from Pomegranate Press. He said, we decided that under these conditions, the windows would have been demolished. The ceiling and beams would have tumbled down and plaster would have fallen off the walls and the ceilings, leaves, dirt, and debris would have created havoc on the inside. I decided that the best way to achieve this was to layer on top of everything the added elements that would have registered their effects on the interior of the foyer and the drawing room. I designed what looked like the overhead beams and chunks of old plaster and had the crew suspend them from the grill above. 
We created torn and shredded uh, draperies and broken windows in place of the existing ones. We took the doors off their hinges and stood them askew. We exposed the brick that was beneath the plaster, even though there had never been brick there before. The carpentry and paint shops had a couple of weeks to fabricate the various elements and ship them to the studio. I remember that it was a Friday night when the studio crew set everything in place in the drawing room and foyer. By midnight, we had placed all the rubble and all but two of the eight hanging overhead sections of plaster and beams. The crew, who were by that time exhausted from a long and harrowing week of hard work, announced that whether I was done or not, they were going home. <laughs> I, re I really couldn't blame them, and I was only too happy myself to call it a night. The episodes that followed certainly gave the show yet another look, which was what kept us percolating. Uh, so Cy Tomashev was amazing, uh, and what they did to the set was amazing. And then they had to put it back together again for when, when they got, got back from 1995. Any thoughts on how uh, yeah, Collinwood that, itself? That, that set is so impressive. I mean, we kind of take the sets for granted on Dark Shed. They're all impressive. But mm -hmm. I feel like that needs some kind of special award. You wouldn't buy that storyline at all without those sets. That mm -hmm. one thing, when I read about 1995, over the years, I wasn't sure, like, what are, are there like Jetsons, you know, like <laughs> sci-fi, is everyone walking around in white jumpsuits or silver jumpsuits, or how do they depict 1995? Knowing the budget and the schedule and everything that the show is working with, I kept saying, how would they depict 1995? So when I finally saw it, it was interesting that for the most part, 1995 looked just like 1970. Yeah. They didn't do anything to try to set it in the future. The one thing they did was that ruined Collinwood. That's the thing that separates it from the time period that we've been following up to that point. Mm -hmm. That's the thing that really smacks you in the face and makes you believe we're in the future. If they had just kind of put some cobwebs and knocked a few things askew, whatever, you wouldn't buy it. They created a different world inside. Mm -hmm. and it, it's so surprising to think that they did it so quickly or that they did it at all, given the the budget and everything they were dealing with, it's surprising. It's so immersive and so believable. It's almost more believable than the regular set. It's this whole environment that they're walking through with all these layers and everything. It might be the most impressive set on the show. Like I said, I mean, all the sets are impressive, but you kind of take them for granted and they're kind of, you know, they, are. they got the walls and the windows and the chairs. You know, this, most of the sets aren't really outlandish. That one though, I mean, that could be a movie set. It's just yeah. if it were on film studio video, you could that could be used in a movie. It's very multi-layered, feels very real, feels like you're in another world, yeah. which you are. You're in the future. You're in 1995. Mm -hmm. So it really makes you believe it takes you out of the world that you've been in and up to that point. And, and they had to go all out with that to make it work. If they had slacked off a little and not gone so far with it, you wouldn't buy the story. So I, I'm very impressed with the production design of mm -hmm. the Ruin Collinwood. It's, they went way beyond what you would have expected. And, and I'm still surprised when I was rewatching it, preparing for this program, I was really surprised. Like, wow, they really, they hit a home run. They, they really, <laughs> they, I, I, how, how much work did this take to create this? And I was looking at like, how do they make this? I was trying to see the original set behind it or, and it was hard. It's not like they just took the original set and put some stuff in front of it. Maybe they sort of what they did, but it doesn't look like that. It looks like the set is really demolished and time has passed and it's yeah. deteriorated. Um, and every and there's so much detail everywhere. It's, it's not just a couple of beams or something. It's you can look in the nooks and crannies and yeah. see 
they really put a lot of thought and work into creating this ruined future of Collinwood. Yeah. I am of two minds about the rest of the sets in that story. I, I do wish they had done something to make you also feel that a little bit when you go into like the police station or mm-hmm. or anywhere else. There's something. I don't know, something with the fashions, something with the technologies, something, or just like a, a reference, like in the dialogue, maybe instead of the United States, maybe it's like the Commonwealth of America, or maybe instead mm-hmm. of a president, we have a prime minister or something, right. or, or mention some kind of a, instead of going to get some gas, going to get some, I don't know, some futuristics, something in the dialogue that says, oh, we're not, we're in the future. It's, mm-hmm. it's not the same world. That, that wouldn't have cost anything. It would have just been dialogue, but there's nothing. Mm-hmm. There's nothing that says we're in the future except that ruined Collinwood. But on the other hand, if they had done that, it would have been very dated. No matter what they would have done, even movies with multi-million dollar budgets look dated. <laughs> right. And I, I wonder if that yeah. was why they went with, you know, not going too far with or at all. But I know what you mean. They, like they think about people watching it years later, though. True. Yeah, they would always say, "Oh, nobody's going to watch see this yeah. again." So maybe, but maybe not. You know, good that in a way that they didn't do that because no matter what they would have done, realistically mm-hmm. with their budget, it would have looked silly to mm-hmm. now. It would if they had tried to make the clothes or sets different, sure. heuristic. It yeah. would have been distracting. Another thing that indicates that we're we're in the future and that some terrible catastrophe has taken place is when we start meeting the characters we know from the regular time band and they're just shells of, of their former selves. They're, they're either insane or just terrified of being anywhere near Collinwood or even mentioning uh, Collinwood. Um, so I'll, I'll read a little bit here of this um, as the storyline goes on. Barnabas and Julia find they've not returned to their own timeline, but to the future of 1995, where Collinwood is in ruins. They encounter Mrs. Johnson, the Collinwood housekeeper, now an old woman, and discover that David Collins died in 1970. They find an aged Carolyn living in a small house on the property. Carolyn is half insane and refusing to answer any of their questions about what happened to Collinwood. Julia goes to the records office in town, and they suspiciously, the man suspiciously claims that all records about the Collins family have been destroyed. Whilst inside the remains of Collinwood, Julia is almost killed by a falling statue, and a strange ghostly man can be seen staring out from one of the windows. They later find out from Mrs. Johnson that something happened in the playroom at Collinwood. So I, I'll stop reading there. This this comes from uh, the wiki page for the Dark Shadows storyline. So they obviously they leave out a lot of details there. But um, let's talk a little bit about some of this, though. They go to the, the cemetery. Uh, they find out that they're in 1995 by looking at the gravestones, uh, recent burials in 1995. They find David's grave. It says he died in 1970. And they see Mrs. Johnson putting the flowers on David's grave. And Clarice Blackburn. I love Clarice Blackburn. I feel like she doesn't get enough credit as an actress on on Dark Shadows. And in this story, this is kind of her final, I think, little toward the force that she has here because um, she gets to talk a little bit about, she doesn't really reveal what happened, but she drops all these hints that it was a beautiful, something to the effect it was, there was a spirit of joy in Collinwood that had not been there for a very long time. And it was a peaceful time. And then things started to happen something sinister that time the time that mm-hmm. barnabas and julia were gone in parallel time yeah it was while barnabas and julia were gone yeah mm-hmm. as, as soon as they get back it's not very peaceful no <laughs> no <laughs> we finally get a peaceful time we don't get to see it yeah, yeah. <laughs> just hear about it 
We just hear about it. Yeah. And we meet her. We meet Carolyn, who's it's heartbreaking, I think, to see Carolyn completely out of her mind. Carolyn's insane. She calls herself Fredericks. She lives in a, in a shack. Uh, she has all these sort of artifacts from Collinwood. Can you catch why she's Fredericks? Um, I don't know why the name Fredericks was used. It was just, I guess she didn't want to be, I mean, the name Collins, uh, she, although she's Stoddard, Carolyn Stoddard, uh, I guess, she, well, I don't know why she didn't go by her married name, Hawks, but she was, <laughs> she was why using something. Like, was there ever a Fredericks on the show? Like a... No, not that I can recall. No, I think she was just trying to distance herself from being associated with Collinwood at all. Well, so I think Nancy Barrett, so she's not my favorite actor on the show but i think objectively she's the best actor on the show in terms of at least what we see i think her performances and her range i think she's the one who consistently gives the best performances it's not the most flamboyant or fun role so she's not my favorite i mean jonathan frid's my favorite actor on the show and i like laura parker a lot too and i like grayson hall i mean I like a lot of people but so nancy's not She's not up on the list of my favorites, but in trying to step back and objectively look at the performances, she's probably the best actor on the show. She's always giving these great performances that are kind of unsung because they're not the most fun character, the most flamboyant, or they're not the... Unless it's Pansy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, she's not Barnabas. She's not Angelique. She's not Professor Scott. Right. Gotcha. Yeah. So she doesn't quite get the credit she deserves, but she is... I only know her work on the show. She She's a great actress on the show and is always delivering these wonderful, varied, nuanced performances. So her, her yeah. performance is really good in terms of trying to pick this crazy, sad character. And, and the makeup is pretty decent. There's a close-up at one point late. I think this might be the, her last episode. There's a real extreme close-up of her face. And I was I, I took note of the, how the makeup was just kind of drawn on. It's really well done that you still you buy it even when it's like like that. And it's just like, you know, drawn on makeup. It doesn't look like a Halloween makeup. It looks it still looks believable, even that close up. And it's a very simple makeup. Whereas Professor Stokes, he's got kind of caked on. I don't right. know what they use. It's latex on his face. He, he's more overt, more exaggerated. And he's not the professors. I mean, both both of them, Stokes and Carolyn, are are shadows of them, their former selves. They're they're yeah. Carolyn's gone mad. And it's a very sad kind of performance. Uh, and, and Professor Stokes, he's not the brave Professor Stokes we know who would try to be the problem solver and jump into the middle of this and try to figure everything out and, yeah. and and kind of laugh in the face of evil. He's a broken man. And that's another way, as you were saying, that kind of gets across the idea that time has passed, that these characters are, they're, they've been kind of downgraded from mm -hmm what we saw in the past, what we're used to. They're they're damaged from the characters that we knew. Uh Quentin, he's yes. gone insane. He's so also I, insane, yeah. He's very insane. So I like David Selby a lot. He's a great actor on the show. I had some issues with his performance in some parts. I feel like he was almost childlike, I thought. Yeah, there but there's just, I don't know, some moments maybe he didn't quite know where to go with it or maybe the direction wasn't quite right or something. But there were some moments with him that kind of took me out of the reality of the scene. I don't know. It's, it's not, it's not, it doesn't, it doesn't ruin it, but there, I wasn't as impressed with his handling of being insane, even though he had other story lines in Dark Shadows, he had been not in his right mind or something and did it much, much better. And this one, maybe it was he was trying to be childlike, 
or his reactions to things it was trying to mimic a child i'm not sure what he was doing but there were some moments that didn't quite didn't quite feel right but he's again he's he's usually very he's some of the guy who's always kind of standing up straight and got the brandy or something <laughs> and he's, he's yeah he's in charge he's he kind of unflappable so yeah. to see him uh, 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 right yeah that was that was that was sad to see it was sad to see the whole story is a sad, sad story sad all yes these, all these <laughs> grand characters are i think that's what i kept writing in my notes sad just sad yeah. i mean sad to see all these characters who were i think all three of those characters were strong characters prior to whatever disaster happened. Carolyn always had a lot of moxie. Carolyn, um, she's shattered. She is a shattered person. And Quentin, as you said, he was unflappable. He was always with a, some cutting witticism or something that he would throw out. And here's Quentin who was quivering in the corner, ready to slash his own Dorian Gray painting. And then you have Professor did Stokes. the ugly painting before this? I and mean, we see the painting, but do we- We did see it. We saw it during the Leviathan storyline. We got to see the Dorian Gray old man Quentin painting. I wish they had actually aged it even more for 19, because it looks pretty much the same as it did in 1970. And I wish they had made it look even nastier for, for uh, 1995. I guess they would have had to paint over it again. Uh, so they, they didn't do that, but- Well, they might, because then the- what if they paint it over to make it look older mm -hmm. and then they go back to 1970 and they need to see it again? Yeah, that's probably why they didn't do it just in case. Although we, I don't think we did see it again, but that was probably the reason though, in case, oh, maybe in case we need to show this again, we can't age it up too much. I mean, it looks pretty horrible as it is, but so, uh, and then Professor Stokes, as you said, you know, he was brave. He, like you said, he was always the first one to, if there was a, a supernatural threat, he's the one you go to for answers to try to combat whatever, you know, you think of the Professor Stokes who entered the dream curse willingly and confronted Angelique face to face. I mean, that was a pretty, I guess if somebody, I forgot who called it a boss move, <laughs> Professor Stokes. It's been a little, several years since I saw the dream curse, but I remember everyone else, the doors open and then they mm -hmm. lose their mind, but then doesn't Professor Stokes, the doors open, he sees whatever's the skull or whatever the thing is. And doesn't he say something like, oh, I guess I'm supposed to be scared of this. Or... I think he says something to that effect. He, yeah. he just does whatever he wants. He breaks all the rules of the dream curse. There's a knock on the door. He says, no, I'm not going to answer. You know, he just, <laughs> he just does whatever. He breaks all the rules of the dream curse and thus causing Angelique herself to enter the dream curse. And then he confronts her. But now we have this completely terrified Professor Stokes who doesn't want to talk about what happened at Collinwood. He doesn't want to go anywhere near Collinwood. He's avoiding Barnabas and Julia uh, Car and Carolyn too. She's like, she doesn't seem to recognize them. Then she does. She's also talking about like Mrs. Johnson brushing her hair when she was a child. But Mrs. Johnson wasn't even, wasn't at Collinwood when Carolyn was a child. She was, Carolyn was already it was a 1966. Yeah, maybe. I, I figured that's just because Carolyn's mad. You know, she's just creating these false mem happy memories that don't exist. So uh, mentally unstable Quentin Collins claims that Professor Stokes attempted an exorcism of Collinwood in 1970, which angered Gerard. Um, oh, and let's talk about Gerard. So we see these ghosts inhabiting Collinwood. The first one we see is Gerard Stiles, who uh, was played by James Storm. He was great. He was very scary looking. You know, that first shot you see of Gerard with that sneer on his face, he was just the master of... <laughs> Of, of the sneer, you know, Gerard Stiles. Um, but as we find out, there are layers to this character. Uh, you know, this, this is sort of a, the first in a three-part arc. The writers and Dan Curtis got to, like you mentioned, was the storyline supposed to be longer? And it, it actually serves as like act one of a three-act story because we get 
1995. Then they go back to 1970 to try to stop what happens. They fail to stop what happens. And then they go back even further to 1840 to the beginning. And we find out that Gerard Stiles is in fact Ivan Miller, who was possessed by the warlock Judah Zachary. So I guess the ghost of Gerard is really Judah Zachary in the form of Gerard. Like you took on the yeah, physical why form. Why does he look like Judah Zachary, like the headless? I'm guessing it's... To... They hadn't thought of it <laughs> I told... What's that? They probably hadn't thought of it yet. No, well, I th- maybe. He probably wanted to have have a nice head of hair. Uh, I'm guessing it's Judah Zachary is, uh, is a very deceptive villain and probably taking on the form of Gerard would confuse, they wouldn't know who Judah Zachary was. You know, Angelique's hanging around uh, Collinwood, you know, she would recognize Judah Zachary, right? So maybe he's taking on that form of the person that he possessed in death so that they will not point the finger at him. Like, it'll be more difficult for them to discern. So it's now how many hundred years since, I don't know, hundred something years since the Mm -hmm. events of Judah Zachary and the headless body in this trial and all that so why is he still hanging around collinwood 1995 i mean he's just like he's got a little turn and he would have he's got nothing better to do or or does he sense when someone's around and then he kind of from the ether comes to scare them or is it part of a grand plan or i'm just wondering why is he there in the first place because he's done his damage he's destroyed mm-hmm. it they've gone family's either dead or insane He's done what he wanted to do. So why still haunt the place? That's a good question. I mean, maybe he himself is cursed to remain there. Something killed Judas Eric when he came back and possessed Gerard in 1840 during the first run of events. He died somehow because something killed Judas even before Barnabas and Julia went back in time and stopped it from happening. Something must have killed him the first time around. So maybe it was punishment for his, you know, we know... Uh, the Diabolos, the devil, you know, he may, he's, he's fond of punishing his, uh, his, the witches and warlocks in his service. So maybe it was punishing that office with the desk and yes, right. Like Nicholas. Yeah. I'm sending you back to Colin. Like you screwed up. Yeah. You're stuck there for eternity. Maybe that was it. I mean, if anybody has theories about that, please send them in. I'm curious to hear. It could be something like that. So we meet him and then we see the ghosts of what we think are, we see David, and uh, it looks like David, everyone, they think it's David, it's actually Tad. Carolyn says it's Tad, so we have no idea who Tad is. This is such a strange period in Dark Shadows, because all of these look-alike characters take possession of their descendants, <laughs> and then they die, and the ghosts Gerard, that are- Not really Gerard, it's David, but not really David. And... Yeah, Carrie is not, or Hallie, we've met Hallie, yeah. Mm-hmm. Daphne, we don't know her. I think that's so we don't we yeah, that's the first time we see Daphne is in the story. Yes, yes. That's the first time we see Daphne too, because there's now this other ghost too that's referenced Daphne, uh, played by Kate Jackson, who of course went on to great fame with Charlie's Angels, but this was her first big role it was on Dark Shadows as as Daphne. I, I do agree with this, and particularly when we see it during the summer of 1970. Um, they're doing the turn of the screw again, uh, which they did with Quentin and Beth. And I have mixed feelings about what's they that? Turn, they, they, it's the second turn of the screw. They the turn second it. turn of the screw. <laughs> I think the blogger, uh, Danny I, I Horn, he called it, uh, the blogger Danny Horn called it, uh, in one, I think one of his entries, he called it uh, the return of the screw. <laughs> <laughs> I, I liked that. But yeah, um, so they're they're going for something like that, but there are other angles to it. What do, what do you think of the whole Gerard and Daphne thing? Well, knowing where he goes, I mean, he's an interesting character later on. I feel like he has a very punchable face. 
<laughs> ghost shows up, I just want Barnabas to just punch him. And even <laughs> Barnabas, it's a, Barnabas keeps mentioning he's arrogant. Julius mm-hmm. who says he's evil. They're trying to get something across in the writings. Barnabas focuses in on arrogance. And Julius says, no, no, no. It's this overwhelming evil penetrating. Uh, and, and she gets a point, the point across that it's like it's corrupting. Not just like it's outside evil. It's like it was inside of you. Yes. You. So they're trying to lay the groundwork for, I guess, the possession angle of Julie, mind control of Julie and other characters in the future. But Barnabas, he, it's like he can't feel that. Yeah. He can't, send, he can't feel the evil. He's like immune to that. I mean, he makes it clear he, Gerard can't harm him or do anything to him because he's he's a vampire, so he's immune to whatever Gerard that's is. A drawback, he can't feel this. Well, maybe it's not a drawback, but Gerard has this essence of evil that just permeates. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. You know, humans are like, they're, they're yeah. filled with it. But Barnabas, you know, he has to hear from someone else. His impression is arrogance. Yeah. And Gerard was arrogant. Maybe, I mean, Dominique Lamsey, who was on here during when we talked 1795, her theory is that uh, Gerard is a hybrid being. Judah and Gerard merged. Maybe Barnabas is picking up on Gerard arrogance and Julia's picking up on the heinous evil of uh, of Judah Zachary. I don't know. When <laughs> when ghosts show up on Dark Shadows, always they're mute when they begin. Yes. Yep. They're always these mute characters, but usually they start as a sinister mute ghost and then they turn into a likable mm-hmm. human. That doesn't really happen with Gerard. I mean, he's he's got some sympathetic qualities, but he's always sort of a scoundrel even before. Yeah, he's a scoundrel. I don't know if I would call him like like a malevolent evil force like Judah is, but he's he's a scoundrel. I think that's a good way to describe Gerard. Yeah. Maybe if they'd gone on another year or something, he would have come back. Mm-hmm. Quentin did. It's a more likable character, but he's never really a. I mean, the actor's likable in a in an entertaining way, but not a character that you really warm up to. The way that Quentin became started as a ghost was kind of a negative character, but became a positive, you know, a likable character. That doesn't really happen for me anyway with Gerard. He's always sort of a. He's either the sinister ghost who's kind of annoying. I I just want a little smirk. <laughs> I feel like Barnabas, he's arrogant. I just want Barnabas just... <laughs> there, there are times, I think, toward the end of the series, they, in some ways, they kind of downplay the fact that Barnabas is a vampire just because you don't see him, like, feeding or anything, you know, for... it's He's he's in 1995 for a couple of weeks, but he's not hasn't bitten anybody as far as we've seen. But I do like that it does build up to this, you know, Julia has fallen under Gerard's control and, and against her will is um, Barnabas is almost destroyed by the by the sheriff but then you end up with this battle of wills between barnabas and gerard which i thought was pretty cool because then you see do see barnabas sort of ex- exerting some of his vampiric powers and he does sort of say julia look at him to exert them more yeah a little bit more we're punching in the gerard. <laughs> maybe it would have descended into like an x-men kind of a superhero story but i just wanted yeah. it I always want, like, why, why doesn't, like, anytime Barnabas is trapped somewhere, I think, why doesn't he just dematerialize? Right. Or just yank the doorknob off the door and break through. I, I figured oh, it's... strong, too. Why, why why would he be able to be chained or restrained? Or... Well, the chaining is, they always explain that with a cross on the inside lid of the coffin. Even when um, jo- uh, Joshua tells Ben to chain Barnabas in the coffin, he said, put a silver cross on the inside lid of the coffin. When he's, would... walled, when he's walled up. He's walled up more than once, isn't he? Barnabas. Not as a vampire, though. He's he's human right. when he's walled up. He has and, above normal strength. He can dematerialize in one place and materialize yeah. in another place, turn into a bat. He can 
control minds. He he can't quite read minds, but he sort mm-hmm. of mind melds a little bit. So he's he's got you know semi telekinetic power. He's got all kinds of powers, but he he only uses them once. It, I guess it, it it wouldn't be convenient for the story if at any point he really used his full power, it would end the story. Mm-hmm. So you have to kind of neuter him a little bit. But oh, I, I, don't... Do like, I do like the moments where, like we were talking about Parallel Time with Angelique, where he uses yeah. power. Well, what, you were saying something about va- him well, being a vampire. And like, I think you were saying that when he uses his power, that's kind of cool. He's he's using his vampiric power, reminding him he's a vampire. I feel like the storyline, another, th- we were talking about the friendship versus romance, the that's kind of one thing, but another thing I, I like is um it's not real overt, but it's underneath there that this idea of Barnabas his nature as a vampire that no matter how good or heroic he might want to be, he is what he is. He's a vampire. He's a dangerous creature. Yes. Even yeah. if he wants to be heroic, mm-hmm. even if he wants to be to save the day. Yeah. He can't help what he is. He's still. He's a vampire. Right. So, and right. I think that comes across like um, moments like when it seems like Carolyn has discovered his secret in the crypt and he's questioning Carolyn. There's it is some... a scary moment. Yeah. Yeah. He's like kind of, it feels like he might yes. fight her or kill her or something for a minute there. Then later he's telling Julia he doesn't want to hurt her, but kind of un- unsaid, it almost feels like but I would if I had to or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yep. He doesn't say that, but it kind of... Frid, Jonathan Frid was playing it that way. I picked up on that, on that too. And it, when you talk about, you know, it would kind of end the storyline, like that's something I thought of too with... Um, like with the door, not opening the door, like I thought, well, Gerard is really is this super powerful warlock, the ghost of a super powerful warlock. So he maybe sealed the door with some supernatural element there. But with, with Carolyn, I said, well, Barnabas keeps trying to fa- find out what happened at Collinwood from Carolyn and she won't tell him why doesn't he use his hypnotic powers on Carolyn and, and get her to talk. Even He doesn't even have to bite her, but that would kill kind of... Do doesn't he why he's going to do it or something? He never um, does, but I thought there was he, a moment. He never does. I thought he, it's like you think he might, and he does look her in the eyes, but he could do that and he doesn't. But that would rob Carolyn of that moment where she does find her old self. She realizes, there's a great scene with, with Jonathan Fred and Nancy Barrett where he she's looking in the photo album and she can't recognize the girl in the picture. And he says, that's you, Carolyn. Very um, budget scene. It's a great scene. Yeah. Uh, and after that scene, she does find the sort of the will to go to finally tell them what happened and she goes to collinwood which is not the place where she should have gone (laughs) it's such a tragic scene too they find they find carolyn you know she's there with the pen in her hand barnabas goes over and she falls over and carolyn's dead uh but she wrote down these uh six clues here uh, about the because they're trying to find out what happened at Collinwood. Nobody will tell them. Mrs. Johnson is now dead too. Gerard killed Mrs. Johnson and Professor Stokes will soon be next to follow. It's like Gerard how- to be able to just like will people to die. He doesn't really have to do anything. He just kind of- Yeah, he just- looks at them and they just kind of- I think that's a ghostly power in Dark Shadows where they can cause someone to have a heart attack. Because Quentin did that with Ezra Braithwaite too, um, the, the Abe Vigoda's character. It just seems, but Gerard definitely, I mean, there's that scene with Stokes in the window and Gerard just sort of does this thing with his hand and Stokes dies, presumably of heart failure. Uh, so I I, f- I think that's just some malevolent ghostly power that they can cause someone. And uh, Quentin did that to 
Madame Finley too, the psychic, when uh, Professor Stokes had Madame Finley go to Collinwood, she also dies and falls down the stairs, presumably, again, some sort of heart failure that scares them to death, I guess. Barnabas finds an incoherent note Carolyn was writing before she died. It details six events which herald the destruction of Collinwood, the night of the sun and the moon, the picnic, the unfinished horoscope, the night I sang my song, the destruction of Rose Cottage, and the murder. They're setting up this mystery uh, here with these six clues, um, which we will then see them completely fail to prevent from happening in yeah. the summer of 1970. It just sets up this really grim storyline in 1995. After Carolyn dies, Julia tells the sheriff that Barnabas is a vampire. Barnabas wakes up in the coffin with the, the sheriff holding the cross to Barnabas's face. Barnabas ends up killing the sheriff. The ghost of Carrie Stokes appears, distracts the sheriff, and Barnabas throttles him and kills the, the sheriff. Uh, and... <laughs> Sword fan online who was very, I guess they were uncomfortable with Barnabas killing a police officer, I think is what it was, because they said Barnabas disabled the police officer. <laughs> <laughs> I said, no. <laughs> well, I guess he permanently disabled the police officer. He... There's a few things there. First of all, it's, it's a, back up a little bit there. That That's another <laughs> example of Barnabas being a vampire. There's also that moment with Quentin, where Quentin grabs Barnabas. Mm-hmm. Barnabas is like, what will you do, Quentin? Right, right, right. You know, there's and and then the sheriff. There's these moments throughout where we're reminded Barnabas is a vampire. He has a survival instinct that's like he can't quite he can't overrule that instinct. If you mess with him, he's going to kill you. Right. And so he might. You know, it's just, oh, it's like it's um something he can't overcome or control. It's like if okay. you try to kill me, you're going to die, even if you're my friend or something. It's like he can't help that. Mm-hmm. He, it's it's like trying to be friends with a scorpion or a right. poison. It doesn't matter how nice you are. It doesn't matter if they want to be nice to you. Just their nature. They're, they're going to sting yeah. you. But I love I love the line, though, when Julia, you know, admits to having done that. And he says, you've saved me so many times. He doesn't blame her for that. You know, Barnabas in 1967 probably would not have <laughs> been as forgiving. Because <laughs> they set these moments up where we see mm-hmm. this vampiric Barnabas coming through culminating in him killing the sheriff it is all the more powerful that he doesn't hurt julia if he was almost gonna kill carolyn and quentin and did kill the sheriff just over being kind of annoyed with (laughs) (laughs) then julia doing his betrayal and then instead he like embraces her and he's going to willing to sacrifice himself for he's not going to let her go Mm -hmm. that makes that moment all the more powerful and shows just what a bond he feels with her so I, I don't know if that was their intent, probably not, but that's kind of how I, I take it, that showing, reminding he's a vampire, he's a vampire, he might mm. seem like a hero, but he's a, he's a vampire. And then at that moment, he acts as a friend and a, a human and not not as a vampire. Right. Um, right. And I was surprised that he didn't actually bite the sheriff. In my memory, he <sighs> bit him, but yeah. he doesn't. He just mm-hmm. kind of strangles yeah. him or something. And why does Carrie help him? That's a good question. I mean, it seems like Gerard is kind of in control of the, all these ghosts who are haunting Collinwood. You have Tad and Carrie and Daphne, but they're also kind of working against Gerard at the same time. Daphne leaves that note, she will die, uh, which presumably is in reference to to Julia. Like It's kind of like a warning, I think, to, to Barnabas about Julia. And then Carrie is trying to help Barnabas. I mean, Gerard killed them or Judah slash Gerard killed them. 
he murdered them. So they probably, these ghosts are actively trying to subvert what Gerard is doing. Um, I mean, they must know that Barnabas wants to help. Barnabas and Julia want to prevent this from happening. So maybe they're actively resisting Gerard's will and trying to undermine his attempts to keep them from doing that. And I don't know what story Barnabas told Professor Stokes, because he tells Stokes that he killed the sheriff. Yes, yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, well, that was that was a drastic move. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Am I complicating this? Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Poor what? What did he say to him? Because he couldn't tell him the whole truth. Because you've talked about this many times. They never mm -hmm. let Stokes in on. Right. Quentin knows. And, it's, you know, obviously Willie knows and some other people know. I don't know how Stokes would react to that. I don't know if he would be okay with that, especially if he looks uh, at the, what happened to all of the, uh, you know, victims of Barnabas or uh, that Maggie Evans was kidnapped and locked in a cellar for several months. You know, I, I don't know if Professor Stokes would be on board for this. I mean, yeah. we see in the movie kind of how he would react. Yes, right. <laughs> and I always wonder, did Stokes figure it out? And then when he saw that Barnabas was presumably cured, maybe he was like, okay, I don't need to pursue this anymore. But in 1995, he doesn't seem to be aware of it. He doesn't, at least doesn't let on, you know, or he doesn't seem to be aware of it. How did the coffin get in the mausoleum wasn't it in the old house in 1970 isn't the barnabas barnabas's coffin in the basement of the old house it seems like he has two because sometimes they go into the secret room of the mausoleum and the coffin's there and sometimes it's in, in the basement of the old i think he has he must have two coffins um uh, i mean he must have two uh because because sometimes they'll go in there and there's a coffin in there. So anyway, of course, you know, the way to deal with anything in Dark Shadows uh, is with a seance. So they decide they're going to have a seance to uh, try to communicate with Carolyn, who speaks through Julia. Grayson Hall doing a Nancy Barrett impression. Thoughts on that? <laughs> uh, well, so I love Grayson Hall. And, <laughs> and I, I love her, everything, which is her all of her. Barnabas! Barnabas! <laughs> I'll give him a sedative. That, that, yeah, that, yeah. That, that, that <laughs> yes. she, she gives Quentin sedative. Yeah, several point. times. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so we, we get that too. But that moment, the seance, I was, that was sort of like some of Quentin's insanity moments for me. Mm -hmm. That kind of, it was, it was a little, little unintentionally funny. So mm -hmm. some of the way she was leaning back and, and, yeah. and I don't know. It was, yeah. it was entertaining, but it was a little, little over the top. It wasn't, it certainly was, I, I mean, Grayson Hall's played some flamboyant characters on the show. You know, she's not always just Julia. She's done some other flamboyant characters. But that one seemed like maybe it was crossing a line. That that moment felt like maybe it was a little outside her wheelhouse or something. She was playing Carolyn, technically. I, was, I thought it was fun. It was um, fun. Yeah. But I, I think it was somewhat unintentionally mm -hmm. entertaining. So uh, we have the seance. Stokes goes to the window, sees Gerard. Gerard kills Professor Stokes. There's a connection between Quentin and Daphne, too, that comes up. Something with Quentin and, and Daphne keeps talking about her. They and back to the sanitarium, does it? do they? Does the sheriff say he's come and take him back or something? Or I think he was, yeah. I, I know Quentin survived. I, mean, I don't know if anything can really kill Quentin unless you destroy his his portrait anyway. Yeah, jo Julia gets taken to Collinwood. Gerard whisks Julia off to Collinwood. Barnabas heads over to Collinwood to the playroom, which we didn't talk much about the playroom, this mysterious room that didn't exist in Collinwood in 1970. One thing the playroom that I, I noticed that was interesting, every time mm -hmm. they approach it, like in the hall, they approach the mm -hmm. door, 
they have a canted angle like oh like the dutch angle yeah 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 so and that's not something you see very much in dark shadows everything is pretty straightforward in dark shadows so i was wondering what are they doing are you trying to suggest you're like entering another dimension as you approach this room because the room isn't always there Mm-hmm. sometimes it's there and sometimes it's not sometimes you open the door and it's a what is it cupboard or something, a linen right? closet yeah yeah mm-hmm. so maybe it's not just the room it's also outside the, the hallway outside there's like a time warp or an interdimensional warp or something yeah. so they're trying to show like as you approach it you're already kind of in an unreality there's, yeah and that's where quentin's stairway into time will appear so i think there's definitely some kind of time warping happening there for sure um and yeah maybe that they they do some interesting things like that in 1994, like the angle. One another thing we forgot to mention in terms of like time passing, like that the shot they show of Collinwood at the beginning of every episode is a very dreary looking shot of Collinwood. It isn't the typical shot you see from of the tower from the back. It's this other angle of Seaview Terrace, but it looks gray and there's a grim quality to it. Uh, so they do some interesting different things like that in, in 19 and 1995 like that. And that Dutch angle thing, just it's a disconcerting sort of angle that they throw in there. They also have the music, which we talked about. I think we talked about more about it before we recorded, but the music that comes from the playroom is a new theme that Robert Colbert did of a tinkly sort of innocent childlike, but it's also, there's also something strange about it too. Um, you were saying you thought it was connected particularly with the carousel. Right. Yeah. Yeah. In 19, in the summer 1970, we see when the carousel starts spinning around, that music plays whenever the carousel so is spinning actually- around emanating well and under normal circumstances it's emanating from the carousel but now it's sort of disembodied from the carousel and it's sort of in the atmosphere it's in the atmosphere although barnabas has a really strange line this is one of the i think this is one of the most bizarre lines in dark shadows which is saying something he says music is rarely used to frighten he says what (laughs) what first of all what what does that even mean and second of all how long you've been here for how long you've (laughs) i guess he forgot about Quentin's gramophone. He, Barnabas himself has used music to frighten. I remember he used music to frighten Julia um, when he was cast that spell to make it look like the ghost of Dr. Woodard was haunting Julia in 1967. And he, I remember the piano went dun, 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 dun played the, the Sarah London Bridge is falling down. I, I mean, Barnabas himself used music to frighten. So that's an odd thing to say, I thought. <laughs> It was strange. I, I was like, John... like writing the supernatural art of war or something. Yeah, yes. He says not as he does. Yeah, yes. Anyway, so the storyline wraps up with uh, Gerard whisking Julia off into the playroom. Barnabas finally confronts Gerard, which I thought was a great scene. There's an earlier scene where Barnabas actually meets Gerard, He did, yes. Yep, I think it was briefly, as I recall. But this is the climax here because Julia has been whisked off and Barnabas wants Gerard to leave her alone. He knows Gerard can't harm him, but Gerard walks up to Julia and just touches her on the forehead and Julia's dying now. Uh, Carrie appears, the ghost of Carrie Stokes walks into the wall and this mysterious doorway appears and the door opens and there's a staircase there. So Barnabas and Julia walk down the stairway and uh, disappear into time and go back to 1970 because of this talisman that was created by, uh, which we'll see, Quentin's ancestor 
Uh, we get a good explanation for that stairway. Like, how did he make it? He, he called it a metaphysical experiment. It's some kind of talisman that he constructed that enables one That's to like transcend. Four steps. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. Uh, I mean, he, we don't see him construct it, but it's some sort of mystical time travel staircase that Quentin... it, I mean, maybe it's just for budget reasons but it's almost like i mean i would buy it if quentin cause this what what decade is that is that eight, 18... 1840 it's okay. quentin the first well, yeah could buy it if he was like an hg wells character and he had like a time machine that he had developed and had some kind of quaint victorian levers or something but they don't go that way they go to something more abstract and supernatural yeah well that's with dark shadows it's always they they lean always more into the supernatural when it comes to think like, time travel even though it's technically a sci-fi trope but with dark shadows it's through the lens of the gothic you know so they use more of a uh, of a supernatural or metaphysical explanation for it i mean they they touch a little bit on it when he's describing what it is but he doesn't go into any great detail about how he constructed this so, time travel character now i'm getting off the subject but his character <laughs> uh, in 18 18- 40, there's nothing else about his character. He's so pragmatic. Nothing else about his character that would suggest he would be not just dabbling, but going all in on trying to create a time vortex or out of a stairway. I mean, he's fascinated by the occult, which is why Desmond brings the head of Judah Zachary to him as a gift. The plan is to give him the head of because he thinks Quentin's going to well, love, you know, love You him. and I are fascinated by the occult. And so I have mm-hmm. this and we're doing this, but I'm not secretly building a. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> or are you? <laughs> don't go to 1995, though. That's, that's bad news. <laughs> oh, I, I was actually, least the thing, we've actually been to 1995. Yeah, I know. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's like, wow, yeah. this is actually the past now. Is there anything you wanted to touch on in particular that we didn't touch on with regard to 1995? I, I really liked the portrayal of Barnabas. I mean, I liked the relationship between Julie and Barnabas, which we did talk about, but I like that Barnabas is almost and you mentioned he was something like he and julia are almost like holmes and watson in barnabas is almost like a detective i could imagine an entire series not a storyline but a whole series like a multi-season series that was all just like this investigative barnabas i'm not saying i prefer that what we have no but i'm saying it's an interesting alternate universe where you have a, a series about like a detective vampire with barnabas very serious investigating interviewing people trying to research things and track things down and he's always in his business kind of suit and tie he doesn't have his cloak he doesn't have his cane and he, and he never bears his fangs and even there's some scenes that are close on his face where i was looking at he doesn't have the really overt dark yeah because usually makeup. when he's a vamp in vampire mode he is does have like a paler makeup with like dark around his eyes and stuff yeah but he yeah. is a vampire in this story. Yes, yeah. But he doesn't have that really over, not overdone, but you know, in-your-face kind of scary makeup that he does. Even in other parts of the series, even if he's just standing around chatting with people, he has that makeup. Yeah. Um, but not here. So he looks very human and he acts very human for the most part. We've talked about exceptions, yeah. but he comes across almost like a detective character solving this mystery, which is, I don't think we've seen that before he always if he goes into another time or something he's always has to kind of investigate figure out what's going on but they really leaned into that with this and pushed some other things out of the way mm-hmm. the more overtly horror oriented stuff 
to focus on the sort of investigator detective Barnabas. I mean, he's always kind of doing stuff like that, but not like this. This is really leaning heavily into this investigative, detecting, researching, interrogating, interviewing, yeah. probing kind of Barnabas. And they continue. And, and also, one of the reasons I wonder, was this originally a longer story that got condensed? Seems like in the beginning, there's like this Lovecraftian things that cannot be mentioned angle where mm -hmm. no one will talk about things. No one they be pretend that they've never heard of things that they have heard of, but they won't say a name. Or they won't. Yeah. It's this weird... It is almost like a Lovecraft story where someone goes into a town and says, I'm here to see the Baron something or other, count whatever, the owner, then they're like, there's no one like that here. You can't right. mention that. Or they mention the name and everyone shuts up and won't talk. And it's almost like that where it feels like there's like an unmentionable thing that's the whole town is in on this. It's almost like a, maybe a conspiracy or something. And it doesn't pay off. It doesn't go anywhere with that. It feels like it's setting up something. But then it, it, it doesn't pay off in 95 and it doesn't pay off later. It's true. Yeah. And I'm wondering, was that like the remnant of some longer story? Well, it seems like they're setting something up that's so horrific that you expect to see like what 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 actually happened here. And it turns out it was I mean, it was bad. It was, you know, what actually ended up happening. But it was Gerard killed everybody and summoned these zombies to come and wreck Collinwood, but... No one outside of Collinwood would have known about that. Right, exactly, yeah. Unless the maybe the zombies started wandering around town. So after that's that. the thing. If zombies had... That would be cool if we mm -hmm. learned that the zombies, after they were done with Collinwood, if there was more of them than what we saw, and they, they just started the town. Yeah, it yeah. Was like an Night of the Living Dead thing up in the town, mm -hmm. but then it would have been national news, but but mm -hmm. they didn't they didn't go there. That That would be... If somehow that happened and it didn't become, you know, international news and it was localized, that I could see would be like a dark secret. But also you think like if they mention that something's going to happen, it's almost like there's a curse that they can't mention if they do, then something it, terrible it will happen. can't speak its and name. Nothing, nothing like that comes to pass. Nothing, right. we don't, nothing like that is revealed. I'm wondering what was the, what was they thinking? It seems like they were thinking of something and then mm. changed their mind or didn't have time to do it. Yeah, or... it just feels like it's something so demonic and apocalyptic. And I guess Judah Zachary is could be kind of there's a there's a movie came I think it was in the 80s came out Witch House, which is about the ghost of a warlock that possesses a house and ends up killing everybody. I'm like, I wonder if they got the <laughs> idea from this. Uh, probably not. But um, yeah, I don't know. It just seems like there's something really dark and apocalyptic that took place here and we only get little hints of it and people are so terrified about what happened and then 1840 doesn't line up with any of it either uh we don't <laughs> no. the playroom doesn't i mean we see the playroom at the beginning of 1840 and then that's it um there's not really anything to do with tad and carrie not much in 1840 so the tad and carrie figure prominently into this and into the summer of 1970 and then they're kind of on the back burner in 1840. So uh, I don't I don't know. Um, I, I think everyone was kind of burned out too at this point in terms of the... I mean, there's great stuff in the last year. I love the last year of Dark Shadows too. But well, I like the last few weeks of that 1840 storyline with Barnabas is acting as Quentin's lawyer. And oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and I know a lot of people complain about Angelique uh, like turning good and Barnabas mm -hmm. saying about to say he loves her i like that i mean I, it could have been done a lot better but it's sweet i mean it's romantic i like that yeah and, and i like that when barnabas becomes human and then angelique becomes human there's like barnabas is saying like if only you were human in you like hey he she just turned you human yesterday but mm -hmm. if only you were human you could feel <laughs> it's like right. there's a thing this acknowledgement that a monster 
doesn't have normal human feelings, which kind of is like what we're talking about in 95, these vampire moments. If you're a monster, you can't feel like the way a human feels. So now Barnabas is human and he's got human emotions. And like Angelique is saying, why don't you love me? And I was like, well, if only you were human, you would feel that she is human finally. Yeah. And then they're about to finally have their romantic moment. And then Trask takes care of that. Right. So I like that. I like you were also you were saying, I don't know, remember if it was during or before the recording that you, it, would, it would have been nice to have a wrap up of the series back in the regular timeline. And we do. It's not what we would like, but we do kind of get that right before the 1841 parallel time. We get that little scene where they come back. Elizabeth is there. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's it's sort of that's sort of the wrap up of the series. It's nice. It's not what we would like. You know, I would have liked a, something more drawn out and elaborate than that. But it is there. It's to me, that is the conclusion of Dark Shadows. That's the conclusion of the storyline. And then we have this little spinoff series. Yeah, yeah, kind of is. I mean, I like 1841 Parallel Time, but it is kind of it is almost like a spinoff or on an island unto itself. But I, I'd like that they did the Wuthering Heights meets the lottery and just the way they use the uh, Shirley Jackson's lottery and kind of reconfigured it into this cursed lottery room. That's the last thing I wanted to say about 95. I just thought of something mm -hmm. that oh yeah, yeah. I, think I told you about this sometime in the past that I feel like this might be a good introductory story if someone had never seen Dark Shadows. I feel like this might be a way in like, okay, just watch these 10 episodes or maybe maybe the episode right before to kind of get some context going into it the last episode of um parallel time but basically these this two-week period it's got barnabas it establishes he's a vampire he has him doing some vampire stuff but it also has him like we we're saying doing in a, being an investigator being a hero it's got the relationship between julia and barnabas and the, the nature of that tension but it has that arc of where it starts and where it ends it's got supernatural foes, it's got a seance, it's got all kinds of stuff. It kind of showcases, even though it's so different from the rest of the series, it also showcases everything that kind of makes the series what it is. So mm -hmm. even though it's atypical, it's also typical. So if you want it, it's like a capsule size version of, of what Dark Shadows is all about. And it's bite size. It's just these 10 episodes. You can watch them in a couple of nights or just do, well, do like two a night for a week or something that might be a good introduction for someone who's never seen the show to, to get into it because it kind of touches on all the things that make dark shadows cool it has the time travel alternate universes and it's got all the it's got gothic it's got modern it's got so many things it's got quentin and his painting etc etc all these different elements where if you took look um the introduction of barnabas that's a long story and mm -hmm. it's very it's not it doesn't have all the fun like jonathan Fred would call it the Brigadoon kind of quality, more of a horror story, like a Dracula story. Or 1897 is very long. That's a great story, but it's very long. It's hard to like jump into that and get a bite-sized part of that and really understand what's going on. And every other part of it, it's too long for a new fan if you're just trying to get them kind of a little taste to get into it. But this one is just 10 episodes and it's a nice story that it, it kind of wraps itself up. Yeah, yeah, it's going to go on like what's happening in 1970. But there is sort of a resolution. There's like a beginning and a middle and an end. And it, there's a self-contained quality to it. Mm -hmm. You don't if you don't want to watch anymore, you don't you're not completely left hanging. Um, so I would if I, I were going to try to introduce a new viewer to Dark Shadows, this would be a prime candidate for where I would tell them to start. Just watch this a little bit. And if you like that, then back up. I don't know if I'd say back up to the introduction of Barnabas because I think that might take some dedication in the early months. 
maybe 1897 i don't know but mm -hmm. just see if you even want to watch the series just watch these 10 episodes and i think that's a good crash course in yeah. what makes the series what it is and why it has an appeal I think that's a great advice. Yeah, I think that's that is a good. I mean, everything you said, it's bite-sized, like you said. I mean, it, and it includes all of the elements of Dark Shadows that are have became synonymous with Dark Shadows, except Angelique. It doesn't have Angelique, but no, it has. But <laughs> so, so if you wanted to get Angelique, to make, make up a couple episodes. <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> now you got Angelique. Um, thank you so much, Raymond, for taking the time to sit down with me and and hang out and catch up. It's been way too long since we've actually gotten to talk, except over well, Facebook. See you in person at some point. I don't know when. Yes. Yeah. Well, I we have traveled to get... in a long time. I know. Me too. I've started doing local cons again, but I'd like to head out maybe and do one of the ones, uh, maybe Monster Bash again or or Wonderfest. Those are the two I I'd, I'd like to get back to. But um, thank you again for joining me, and thank you for listening to Terror at Collinwood. Again, if you're listening to the audio version of this, you're listening to a shorter version of this episode. If you want to see the full length version with video, head on over to YouTube. Please do subscribe to the Terror at Collinwood YouTube channel and or to the audio feeds on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts so that you do not miss a single episode of Terror at Collinwood. And thank you for listening. And for as long as they lived, the dark shadows never truly vanished, for there will always be Terror at Collinwood. Terror at Collinwood is a Penny Dreadful production.